We'll hear argument next in case 05-1631, Scott versus Harris. Mr. Saverin. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. This case concerns whether a police officer can be held personally liable for using force to terminate a dangerous high-speed pursuit. The undisputed facts show that Deputy Scott did not violate the Fourth Amendment. Respondent had led the police officers on a nine-mile pursuit at exceptionally high speeds. As the videotapes that have been admitted into evidence show, Respondent was driving on narrow two-lane roads at night. He swerved across the double line to pass cars that were in his path, actually traveling in the wrong lane of travel. He ran through a number of red lights. He weaved through a shopping center and collided with Deputy Scott's vehicle. Deputy Scott, at that point, had tried to block the exit from the shopping center, but Mr. Harris was successful in using his vehicle to escape. At that point, he continued driving at exceptionally high speed. I ask this question about the shopping center. Wouldn't your case be exactly the same if the shopping center incident had not occurred? It would, Your Honor. So that we really don't have to get distracted by the shopping center. There, there is a uh, yes, Your Honor. There is a factual dispute as far as whether Deputy Scott's vehicle collided with Mr. Harris's vehicle or vice versa. But we do not believe that that is a material dispute. Uh, we believe that the fact, the undisputed facts, that Mr. Harris was driving at such exceptionally high speeds, and to put in context, 90 miles per hour which is the average speed, and, of course, is evidence that... I'm not sure why you, why you concede that. I mean, I looked at the tape, and it seemed to me it's uh, one of the uh, a case involving the whole ball of wax. And I suspect my reaction to that tape was in part affected by the fact that he went through the stopping center, came out, and crashed into a police car, which is what Scott saw. Well, Scott, oh, yes, Your Honor, I think that is part of the analysis. So uh, how do I know whether which of these things is directly or not indirectly, isn't, well, you go ahead, but I mean, are you, am I not supposed to look at the part which involves the shopping center? Oh, a- absolutely, Arn. I met my point was that, that the point was that there was a collision, not who caused the collision, whether uh, the deputy pulled into Mr. Harris's line of travel or Mr. Harris pulled towards the deputy. But, but is, is the rule that you propose that the policeman must balance the risk of harm to others versus the risk of harm to the fleeing person? Your Honor, what the, what the, uh, yes, uh, essentially. Your, your, your brief says if the officer reasonably believes that doing so, i.e. terminating the chase, would avoid a greater risk of bodily injury or death. Yes, Your Honor, and, and we believe. Great, greater than what? Great, greater than the. Greater than not taking action. Uh, in other words, that the harm. Without reference to the possible harm to the, to the driver. I think, that is, I think that is one of the factors. I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, if, if, if this fellow driving at 90 miles an hour is responsible for endangering people, you're, you're, you're proposing a rule that says if there's a, a 50 percent chance that, that he'll hurt some innocent person and a 50 percent chance that he'll get hurt if you try to stop him, you shouldn't do anything. I don't agree with that. Well, Your Honor, the, the I'd, I'd stop him. I mean, he's he's the fellow that's uh, that's causing the danger endangerment, isn't he? Yes, Your Honor, I agree with that. And one I think thing I giving away too much. <laughs> well, one thing I did want to point out is that 
a speed of 90 miles per hour, and of course there's evidence in the record that the uh, vehicles were at times traveling over 100 miles well, an hour. Well, I didn't mean to, to put words in your mouth. Uh, it, it seems to me your test might be whether there's a greater risk in stopping him or not stopping him as to other people without reference to the risk to himself. Maybe that's Yes, that's probably a better articulation. Well, of, of it's your brief. I want you to I, no, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a better articulation of the appropriate well, doesn't, test. Would be doesn't the, way the speed also relevant to the likelihood that uh, running into a car at that speed would cause the death of the driver? It, it would, Your Honor. Uh, Isn't a fairly high probability that if you hit someone at that speed that there will be something, either either death or serious injury as a result? Your Honor, my answer to that question would be that that's always going to be the case whenever force is used to stop a vehicle at this high rate of speed. Well, I suppose there's also a high probability when you're going 90 miles an hour on a one-lay road crossing over the double yellow line with oncoming traffic that you're going to hurt somebody else. Yes, Your Honor. I mean, the more you increase the speed, the more likely he's going to be hurt, but also the more likely, if you let him go, somebody else is going to be hurt. Yes, Your Honor. And to put it in more concrete perspective, 90 miles per hour is mathematically equivalent to over 130 feet per second. But, Mr. Sovereign, there was an episode in the parking lot when things came to a temporary halt. If Scott had stopped pursuing Harris at that point, Maybe Harris would not. Maybe he would have slowed down if he would. He was trying to flee from the police. But if the police weren't after him, there's no indication that he would have been speeding. Well, Your Honor, I would take. Uh, I would disagree with that. that well, he fact, was he was speeding before the police knew about him. Right. That's the whole where this all started. The initial offense was speeding, uh, and Mr. Harris, instead of pulling over, slowing down as. Uh, would might be expected by a reasonable person, sped up and continued to drive recklessly. We would contend that it was Mr. Harris that it was in control of the force that the officers need to terminate the risk that he presented. At any time, any time, Mr. Harris could have either slowed down his vehicle or stopped, and he chose not to do that. Well, do you contend that an officer can always use deadly force to stop a high-speed driver who's creating this kind of risk? I think it depends on how you define deadly force. Of course, there can be different Running into him with a high probability that he'll get killed. I think that that, that would be the case, as I indicated, whenever uh, an officer uses force to stop a vehicle at this speed. Uh, I think there's a if, — if it is deadly force, and, of course, this Court has not articulated a test of, of that particular question. But wasn't that acknowledged in the district court, the trial court? In this case? Yeah. No, the district court found — that it did not need to resolve whether or not the jury might find that it was deadly. The Eleventh Circuit found that the jury might conclude it was deadly force. And do you contend that a jury could not find that it was deadly force? I believe, again, Your Honor, I believe that it depends on how broad the test is. The model penal code test, which most of the circuit courts... Well, but is is it your view that a jury could not find on these facts that there was deadly force? I believe, yes, under, under, under the test as articulated in some of the circuits, yes, this would not be deadly force. Uh, of course, what we're I, saying I, I is... Thought we had given, I thought we have a test for deadly force in Garner, and it's whether or not there is a, it's more likely than not, uh, or, or whether or not there's a serious risk that death will ensue. That's the test, isn't it? Garner. Your Honor, as I read the, the Garner opinion, the Court did not need to reach a definition of deadly force because... Shooting someone in the back of the head is clearly going to be deadly force. The circuit courts 
I can tell you that the circuit courts in the wake of Garner have said that Garner did not create a test and have created different tests along the lines of the model penal code uh, to reach that definition. But the point that — I'm sorry. I was going to say the point that I would like to make is that there are degrees even within uh, the continuum that might be within a definition of deadly force, such as uh, using the vehicle to make contact, blowing out the tires, using stop sticks, using a firearm. Those have different degrees of potential lethality. So even if they are all considered deadly force, there are decisions well, that an officer what has test to make. Of, what test of deadly force would not be met here? A likelihood. It's a summary judgment issue. Yes, Your Honor. I, I would say the Third Circuit decision in the Philadelphia litigation case where the officers dropped a bomb on a building in order to gain access and ended up killing 11 people. Um, the court found that that was not deadly force because the officers were trying to gain access to the building, and they reasonably believed that they were able to do that without the loss of life. I think that if, if that definition were applied to this case, then I think that this would not be deadly force. But I think... I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. Uh, But but the the, excuse me, he he reasonably because because uh, Scott reasonably believed that he could bump the car off the road at 90 miles an hour without without risking the driver's life. Is is that why it's like the Third Circuit case? Your Honor, his intent was to end the pursuit, not to cause an accident. Oh, well, you, but the Third Circuit case you just described didn't, didn't talk about intent. It talked about reasonable, reasonable belief. Well, let, let me cite another case, then, the Adams case from the 11th well, Circuit. Before you do that, will you go back to the Philadelphia case? Do you contend that a, a jury could find that he reasonably believed that he would not cause, uh, that he would not raise a serious risk of death or serious bodily harm? By bumping the car at 90 miles an hour? Yes, Your Honor. And if I would say — I don't understand that. How could such a belief be reasonable? What what, what, what am I missing? Let let me cite the Court to the Eleventh Circuit's own reasoning in the Adams case. Uh, In that case involved a misdemeanant where the officer intentionally uh, made contact with the vehicle several times. The last contact caused the death of a passenger. The Eleventh Circuit — found that Garner did not apply to that situation and further said that a policeman's use of his vehicle is very different from a policeman's use of his gun. That doesn't answer my question. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Why, why would it be reasonable to believe that a car could be bumped at 90 miles an hour plus without raising a substantial risk of death or serious bodily harm? How could such a belief be reasonable? Because there are vehicle collisions every day, Your Honor, that do not end in death or seriously bodily harm. Some people are lucky. We're talking about creating a substantial risk. How would it be reasonable to assume that one would not create a substantial risk? Your Honor, because Mr. Harris could have regained control of his vehicle. Uh, the, the point is that Mr. That the petitioner had limited options based on the manner in which Mr. Harris was driving. And even if this would be considered deadly force, we do believe it would be justified under the circumstances. Well, that, that, that's, that's a different issue, and you may prevail on, on other arguments in the case. But as to whether or not there's a likelihood or a reasonable likelihood of serious injury, it seems to me that it's clearly a question for the jury. I mean, we might argue about it up here. That, that's a classic jury question, isn't it? I believe in the context of the Fourth Amendment with the Graham factors and the question of probable cause that is not the same as 
simply a jury question. But I, I do concede that if it's not deadly force, it's very close to it. But I think the important thing is that whatever force Mr. Uh, the petitioner used was limited by Mr. Harris's driving. Uh, Mr. Sovereign, one uh, technique that Officer Scott asked permission to use, it was uh, described as a PIT technique that would be a life and limb sparing measure. One oddity about this case is that he called and asked permission to use that less risky method, and yet when he determined that he couldn't do that given the speed of the vehicles, he didn't ask permission to do what he did do, which was life-endangering. Your Honor, if I could respond to that in two respects. Uh, first, uh, it, is not the, it is not the case that the pit maneuver, as it's commonly called, uh, is safe. Uh, it, what it does is spin the car out. And if Mr. Harris's vehicle had been uh, spun out in this case, is a more likelihood that he would have lost control. In other words, it causes the vehicle to lose control. The second response I would have is that uh, the petitioner did ask permission to do the pit maneuver. The permission that the supervisor gave, which is Mr. Fender, that's in the record, undisputed, was to use force up to deadly force. Uh, so, Mr. Uh, what, where is that? That's in Mark Fenninger's deposition, and he is the supervisor. Uh, and he was, said uh, he gave permission for m more than the PIT procedure? Yes, Your Honor. His testimony was that he was giving, he believed he was giving permission up to and including deadly force. Well, the phrase used was take him out, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. Does the police officer have any obligation in a situation like this to consider other alternatives? And if, there, if so, what, what all other alternatives might have been available to this officer? Yes, Justice Stevens. I think, that, I think the officer had very limited options, two options at that point, either use force or let Mr. Harris go. Uh, and I think it was a balancing Even, of, even letting him go, isn't it possible they could uh, get other roadblocks up ahead or get other people involved in the, in the attempt to catch him? Yes, there always are other potential. However, I would submit that a vehicle traveling at 130 feet per second can do a lot of damage in a very short period of time before the police officers can figure out what would, route would he's going to take. Would that be true if there's no traffic on the road at that particular time? At the, Deputy Scott took the action that he did because there was a low likelihood of injury to third parties other than Mr. Harris, because there was no one in his immediate path of travel. Well, in that, in that circumstance, why wouldn't he consider just discontinuing the chase? Because there were the, — the uh, videotape shows that uh, the uh, — Mr. Harris passed approximately 36 cars during this period of time. Twelve seconds before the contact was made, a vehicle was passed by uh, Mr. Harris. There was a high likelihood, in fact, a probability that this chase was going to end in tragedy, and Deputy Scott took it would the action end, that Would it have been that likely if the officer discontinued the, the chase? Whether he discontinued the chase or not, Mr. Harris could still injure whoever might be around the next corner, Your Honor. If there are no further questions, I'd like to save my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Saverin. Mr. Garr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When a suspect disobeys a lawful command to stop, 
races off in a reckless attempt to elude the police and demonstrates a disregard for his own life and the lives of others in his path, the police may use force, including deadly force, to bring the suspect's vehicle flight to a halt and protect the public safety. Does it matter exactly what the nature of the escape was? Are we supposed to evaluate whether this was reckless enough? Well, let's say the, the uh, uh, driver did not go off 90 miles an hour. Let's say he obeyed the speed limit. He just wasn't going to stop. Does that I, make it a different case? It, it does, Your Honor. The key determination is whether the officer on the scene reasonably determines that the vehicle poses a substantial risk to other motorists or the police in his way. Here, I would think that would apply to all speed all high-speed chases. Would you, would you not agree? Uh, I agree that it does, Justice Kennedy. Here what you have is an individual who's going at extraordinarily high speeds, 80 to 100 miles an hour, an individual who has passed cars across a double, double line. There were numerous motors, motor vehicles on the night, an individual who has ran red lights, and an individual who, when three police yes, cars — but that was while he was being chased, right? Before he was being chased, he hadn't done any of this. He was going 72 miles an hour in a 55-mile zone. Isn't that right? Well, that's true, Your Honor, but as, as the Court said in the Sacramento versus Lewis case, we don't blame police for the individual's reckless flight in that context. We don't blame police that respondent made a decision to disobey. No, but if you're thinking of the likelihood of harm, if he discontinued the chase, is it not reasonable to assume he might go back to going 72 miles an hour in a 55-mile zone? Not on this record, Justice Stevens. And in particular, it might also be reasonable to assume that anyone who was chased by the police will immediately speed up to 90 miles an hour. That's exactly <laughs> right, Justice Scalia. And on this record, it doesn't seem to me a very good rule to give to police forces. Uh, and anybody who's going 72 miles an hour, let him go. Or at least if he hits 90, let him go. We agree, Justice Scalia, and I think Justice Kennedy put it in Sacramento versus Lewis that there's a real danger. It isn't a question. It's a question of whether it's, it justifies the use of deadly force to prevent this, this uh, situation. The question in our mind, Justice Stevens, is whether Deputy Scott reasonably believed that respondent posed a serious risk of injury or death to other motor vehicles, bystanders, or police on the roadway that night. Why, why are these absolute? Uh, sort of, I, I mean, I looked at Garner, and then I looked at Graham, and Graham, which came later, said that all claims that officers have used excessive force, deadly or not, should be analyzed under the Fourth Amendment and its reasonableness standard. So I guess the, isn't that right? Isn't that the law? We agree with All right. If that's the law, then whether, of course an automobile could, could kill people. Of course it can. So could a lot of things. But an automobile isn't a gun. And a chase through on, on the highway is not a chase through a backyard. Though both could end up with the person being chased dead. So aren't we supposed to look at all the circumstances, including the circumstance of whether, one that interests me, one, is that the right standard? Two, did Scott know that the reason he was chasing this person was because he had violated a steed limit? Or was he ignorant of the reason why the individual was racing away at 90 miles an hour? Which is it, as far as the record could show? Uh, Justice Breyer, to answer the second question first, Scott did not know that he was initially And a reasonable juror could not conclude to the contrary. Well, Scott, I believe Scott's testimony was that he did not know. What Scott knew, and he, had, he was engaged in the chase, but this was an individual who had crossed cars across a double yellow line. This was an individual who had ran red lights. This was an individual when three police squad cars converged on him in the shopping center parking lot, collided with them, 
and ran off under the highway, reaching again speeds up to 90 miles an hour. Is it reasonable for him to suppose that there might be something more going on if the guy is trying this hard to get away from a speeding ticket, that perhaps he presents a danger to the community for reasons quite apart from the driving? A absolutely. Uh, is that a factor that goes into the analysis? It is, certainly at a, at a common sense level. Uh, statistics show that most vehicles who flee in this fashion, oftentimes there is alcohol or drug abuse involved, oftentimes there are stolen vehicles. We don't think um, that — they knew that he had drugs in the car that he would dispose of if he got caught, would that justify this uh, using deadly force? I'm not sure that it would, Justice, Scalia, uh, Justice Stevens. I think that sure it would not, isn't it? Because that would be no more serious than the crime in, in Garner, would it? Well, th that's true. I mean, the, the key the key point about this case is the threat that respondent posed and that high, the suspects who engage in high-speed vehicle chases pose to the public. And that, that is fundamentally different than Garner for the reason that you mentioned. Garner involved. Well, your position would be the same, even if uh, Scott knew that the only reason they were trying to stop him initially was the speeding violation. Yes. It doesn't matter why the chase began. The point is that when Scott made the decision to use force against respondent, he reasonably determined the respondent posed a grave threat to other motorists, the police, and any bystanders who might come in as well. Why, why wouldn't it matter? I mean, other things being equal, suppose that he'd known that all that happened, suppose he was two miles beyond the speed limit. And Scott knew the whole thing, or Scott was the one who did it. And he sees maybe he's a young kid who's frightened and he has his license number and he could get him later. I mean, why wouldn't it be nutty to, to, to try to bump somebody off the road where all, that's all that's at stake? Because, Your Honor, regardless of the reason the chase began, at the moment that Deputy Scott used the force, this car posed a serious risk to everyone else on the road that night. Someone traveling 90 miles an hour, up to 90 miles an hour, on a two-lane windy road with numerous cars passing during the course of the chase, it was that threat that, uh, that Deputy Scott um, acted against when he used that force, and that was a reasonable use of force. It's reasonable regardless of whether this Court determines that it was deadly force How do you deal the with the Brower case, that it was a 1983 action against the police for setting up a roadblock to catch a speeder, and the Court said that the roadblock uh, was uh, — enough to give rise to a 1983 claim. Justice Ginsburg, the, the holding in that case was that the roadblock amounted to a seizure. And, and we don't know in disputes that there was a seizure in this case when Deputy Scott intentionally used force to put respondents off the road. So in that respect, Brower doesn't speak to the question in this case, which is whether or not that use of force was reasonable under the circumstances. Justice Kennedy, in the Sacramento versus Lewis case, in a concurring opinion, said that there was a real danger of adopting a constitutional rule that suspects are free to disobey lawful commands. May I just make this one point? Is it correct that the issue is whether it's reasonable, or is the issue whether a jury could find it unreasonable? Well, it's ultimately, to determine whether this decision can be made at the summary judgment stage, you would have to consider whether a jury could find it unreasonable. Here, on the relevant undisputed facts, we submit as a matter of law, Deputy Scott reasonably believed that this force was necessary under the circumstances. And the, the final point that I wanted to make is back to Justice Kennedy's concurrence, is that there's a real danger in adopting that kind of constitutional rule, that it will encourage more suspects to flee, and that will only increase the danger to the public and to police and to motorists in these high-speed chases. We would urge this court to reverse the decision below.
there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Garr. Mr. Jones. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I'd like to begin by responding to some of the questions uh, that were asked uh, to Petitioner. Um, first of all, Officer Scott himself admitted in his testimony that he knew at the time that he was using deadly force, and he realized at the time that he uh, was likely to cause injury or uh, death or serious injury uh, to um, Mr. Harris. Um, is there any doubt that Mr. Harris was likely to cause death or serious injury to the other cars on the highway that he was passing? Uh, Mr. Harris was simply a, a, um, an unsafe driver. Uh, there's always a risk at driving in excess of speed limit, uh, driving in violation of traffic laws, but that risk in and of itself We're not is talking not. about driving in violation of traffic laws. We're talking about 90 miles an hour on a two-lane highway, swerving past cars and the incoming traffic. Well, we're uh, talking hitting after hitting uh, Officer Scott's uh, car and continuing on. That's a little more than just unsafe. Well, those are not the facts before the court, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, the facts are that he was driving fast, but he was under control. He only crossed the center line to pass, and when he passed, he used his turn signal when he passed. He, he used the turning signal. That, that's like the strangler who observes the no-smoking sign. I mean, I yes. <laughs> and when he turned into the... Um, when he turned into the shopping center, he wasn't weaving through a parking lot. He was going through a private access road in a shopping mall, which was closed at 11 o'clock at night. And the uh, collision, the impact occurred when Officer Scott, who was going too fast to make the turn into the shopping center, went up to the next intersection, came around the other way to head my client off at the pass. And then what happened was that Mr. Harris took evasive action to avoid a collision when Mr. Harris, excuse me, when Officer Scott put himself right in Mr. Mr. Harris Jones, plane. I looked at the videotape of this. It seemed to me he created a tremendous risk to, to drivers on that road. Is that an unreasonable way of looking at the at this tape? He created this is the scariest chase I ever saw since the French connection. It, it, <laughs> it is frightening. I've uh, seen, I guess. Frightening I amount of speed and cars coming in the opposite direction at night on a two-lane windy road. Well, as the court below found, and as the tape indicates, Mr. Harris didn't run anybody off the road. He didn't ram anybody. He didn't try to ram anybody. He was just driving away. The question is whether he was creating a substantial risk doing that. He was creating My, my question uh, is, how could a jury find otherwise? Uh, your answer up to this point has said, well, he used uh, signal lights and, and his reflexes were good, and they sure were. But the question is whether he was creating a substantial risk uh, of death or, or serious bodily harm to others. And my question is, uh, leaving, uh, assuming that his reflexes were good and he knew how to use the signal lights, how could a jury uh, fail to find that he was creating such a risk? Well, a jury can certainly find he's creating a risk, but with regard to the other Garner factors that must be shown before deadly force can be uh, used. He had not committed a violent felony, a crime involving the infliction or threatened infliction. Garner was or, not talking about someone who, at the time the deadly force was used, was himself creating a substantial risk of death or serious bodily harm to others. That's what we're dealing with here. Uh, and, and the reasonableness of the officer's action depends upon whether, uh, at the summary judgment stage, a, a jury could reasonably find uh, that, in fact, he was not creating at that moment a substantial risk 
of serious bodily harm or death to others. And my question is, how could a jury find anything else? Well, a jury could find that the pursuit by the officer uh, escalated the risk rather than diminishing the risk to others, and that given a choice between using deadly force to terminate a pursuit where the officer himself has escalated the risk versus backing off, letting the offender escape, and then perhaps arresting him an hour later. Did did Scott know that? Did Scott, do you have evidence to show that Scott knew that the underlying offense was was, uh, a speeding violation? We have evidence that it was called out on the radio. I'm I'm pursuing someone. Whether Scott knew that, we don't know. Scott has testified, I didn't know it. Scott says he did not know. You think you can get to the jury on the question of whether he knew it? Scott's testimony. I'd like a yes or no answer. Um, the, the testimony. Uh, is that doesn't sound like yes or no. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not certain I understand the question. The but. question is, can you get to the jury on the question of whether Scott knew that the underlying offense was for speeding? Scott did not know that was the underlying offense. Right. If Scott didn't know it, I mean, my goodness then I don't see the relevance of whether it was speeding or not. And I was with you when I read the, bar, the, the opinion of the court below. And I read the other brief. I was on the other side. Then I've been shifting back and forth. Then I looked at that tape. And I have to say that when I looked at the tape, my reaction was uh, uh, somewhat similar to Justice Alito's. And so if it's doubtful, and then you can't even show that the person who did it knew that this was for speeding rather than for murder. How can you get to the jury? Well, there's certainly a credibility issue as to whether Scott says he, he knew or didn't know. I mean, the radio was certainly called on the radio. He could have inquired. Um, the thing is Well, and that, as the uh, Chief Justice indicated by, through a question earlier, isn't it reasonable for an officer to assume that it is, uh, he is trying to escape because there's something more serious than speeding um, at stake? I that mean, would that, not that's be. The, that's, the, that's the assumption I would draw. That assumption would not be based upon probability or based upon police training. Uh, officers in pursuit situations are trained to believe. You, you mean just, just as many people that take off on high-speed chase for speedings as, 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 for, as for serious crimes? The vast majority have committed minor crimes, and it's not a rational decision to flee. But at, at, the moment, at the moment Scott came into this case, what difference does that make? Why is that even relevant? What Scott, let's assume Scott knew that this entire situation had eventuated uh, out of a, an 18-mile uh, uh, in excessive speed uh, act by the individual. Assume that. What Scott also knew at the point at which he joined the chase was that this individual was, was driving a car at 90 miles an hour. He was uh, crossing yellow lines, going through red lights, etc. cetera. Uh, at that point, wasn't the only legally relevant datum whether or not Harris was creating the, 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 the risk of, of death of bodily harm to others. That's, that's the issue. Was there an immediate risk of death or suicide? So, so you agree that whether Scott knew or didn't know that this whole scenario had eventuated out of, out of a speeding situation was irrelevant. It's not relevant. It's, it's relevant to that determination. But, the, yeah, the issue is, is there an immediate risk? But one of the factors that can be, that is, uh, 
that is significant is what is the severity of the underlying crime. And if it is a crime of violence, then certainly uh, the officer is entitled to. That's exactly where I started on, and I wondered, that's what I'm uncertain about the standard for this. Because everyone, you and the others, have been arguing as if the question is one about rules surrounding the use of deadly force. But then when I read what I read out to you in, in Graham, it seemed to me that Graham, which comes after Garner, says that's not the standard. Well, Graham the standard is a standard of simple reasonableness, and Garner is simply an illustration of that as applied to guns and a backyard chase, not as applied to cars, which threaten other people much more. Well, that's and, a good question. Yeah. Uh, All right. But what is the standard? Am I supposed to apply Am I not supposed to apply Graham? Well, either if, whether you apply Garner or Graham, the result is the same in this case. And let me explain why. Uh, what Graham did is it expanded the Garner rule that you can't use deadly force to, to stop a fleeing suspect who's merely fleeing, expanded that to include the entire range of use of force, deadly or non-deadly. And with regard to the factors that are to be considered in determining whether the use of force is reasonable under Graham, uh, the, the balance with respect to a fleeing uh, suspect who's subjected to deadly force was already drawn by Garner. Garner created a bright-line rule. Uh, Graham expanded that to an ad hoc balancing test to be used in all use of force applications. But with respect to deadly force and a fleeing suspect, Garner still provides a bright-line rule. So you're saying I cannot do the following under the law, which would seem to me contrary to current common sense. Every to say there is a big difference between a policeman shooting a person who's running away and threatens no harm to others, and a policeman using a, gun, uh, using a car on a highway to try to get a person to stop who is threatening others. I have to treat those exactly as if they were the same thing. Yes, and Garner, this Court's decision in Garner and this Court's decision in Brower, which was written by Justice uh, Scalia uh, for the Court, uh, basically equates flight in both cases. In, in the Brown County venue. The Eleventh Circuit gave the exact opposite answer in the Adams case. Well, which if you're looking at what the, was clearly established law from the point of view of the officer, that provides him guidance that the Garner case does not dictate a result in the use of deadly force in a police chase case involving an automobile. Well, the holding of the, uh, of the Adams versus St. Lucie County case was that in 1985, uh, an incident which occurred six weeks after the Garner decision and four years before the Brower decision, there's no way the officers could have known at that time that their act of ramming a police car uh, to prevent uh, an escape of another fleeing vehicle would have been considered deadly force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. As the dissent pointed out in the uh, in the Adams case, though, certainly as of the Court's decision in 1993, this was now clearly established. You had Brower saying that it's a seizure, and then you had this Court saying that now the law was clearly established. So what Officer was Scott was trying to figure out what the law is. He should have relied on dissent in the case? Well, another case came about uh, later, which held that as early as 1998, in another case involving the same department, that, uh, that it was clearly established law. This is in the um, it, Was there any decomps. case at the time of the action, in this case, any decision that said ramming Ramming a car to end a chase violates the Fourth Amendment. 
Brower versus County of Inyo says Bra- that Brower was a was a roadblock. It was a roadblock which produced a collision, a physical impact between vehicles, and that was the, that was the that was the distinction which Justice uh, Scalia. Uh, latched on in that case and said that the, the mere fact that the person was fleeing by car in Brower was no different than the burglar fleeing by foot in Garner. But the Either issue, one of them. The issue in the case was quite simply whether there had been a seizure. Isn't that the issue? That was the decided? first holding. The second holding was that the plaintiff had sufficiently pled a cause of action for an unreasonable seizure, and then it went back to the lower court uh, to be considered under the Garner analysis. And uh, what I what I liked about your decision, uh, excuse me, Mr. Chief Justice. No, go ahead. Finish. What I what I liked about your decision in that case, uh, um, Justice Alito, was that you said that the officer's culpability for using excessive force is not diminished by the fact that the perpetrator chose to continue running, whether it was the fleeing burglar in Garner or the fleeing driver in Brower. Excuse me. No, if I could just get back to an earlier point. You think what the officer should have done in this case was to let the, uh, Mr. Harris go? That was one option. He could have continued the pursuit and simply decided not to mow him off the road at 90 miles an hour. Or he could have stopped the pursuit and let him go, which often happens in, in many pursuits. Even though he doesn't know at that point that he'll ever be able to get arrest him later. He doesn't know if it's a stolen car or not. That's correct. He doesn't know why he's being pursued, whether it's for mass murder or terrorism or anything else. Well, that's correct. But in the majority of cases, and this is the only testimony in this record, um, Your Honors, uh, our expert testified on a study, based on a study which was commissioned for him by the Department of Justice, a study which has been cited by some of the amicus briefs on both sides in this case, uh, Dr. Albert testified that 70 percent of the time uh, when police back off pursuit, the, uh, the perpetrator stops running and they resume safe driving. And when the car is stolen, most well, of the once time — Once they've gotten away, I assume. Well, sometimes you have to let them get away. Under Garner, it says even if the guy's just broken into somebody's house in the middle of the night and committed a felony, if the choice is letting them go or using deadly force when the factors — authorizing deadly force are not present, you have to let him go. But if he's shooting his way out of the house and endangering other people, I mean, that's, that's the correct. distinctive fa- factor here, of course. If he's taken the jewelry and he's, he's gone off into the night, uh, if, if shooting at him might endanger somebody else or even kill him, you have to let him go. And let's take I'm talking about a burglar who's, you know, who's, who's shooting as he leaves. You can shoot him. I'd be, I'd be there shooting him, Of course you can shoot him. But let me, let me take that distinction and apply it to the vehicle of sense, uh, Justice Scalia. What we have to have to authorize deadly force in this context is something more than just, just unsafe flight. You've got to have someone who is behaving violently, who is, you know, menacing people, uh, trying to ram people. But he is and you violent tell, and assault. Can you tell me, as of the time he exited the parking lot, uh, by that point had he committed any felonies? No. All he had done was taken evasive action to avoid an officer who was coming. Ninety miles an hour would not be a felony, not a reckless driving? At this point, it's 30 to 40. But are you talking about the, the traffic pursuits he's committed yes. in the pursuit? No. None of those are felonies under Georgia law. At, After, no, at no point did he commit a felony? No. No, Your Honor. There's not even a felony eluding in Georgia. Uh, but he certainly I'm, committed if, if a lot of If he intended to hit the police officer, was it? If, if he had intended to hit the police officer and that fact was shown by any evidence, uh, they could have charged him with aggravated assault. They didn't do that. They left 
traffic citations in his hospital room. They never arrested him. They never prosecuted him. The key point is that he is endangering the lives and safety of others. Anyone who has watched that tape has got to come to that conclusion, looking at the road and the way that this car was swerving and the cars coming in the opposite direction. This was a situation fraught with danger. Well, Justice uh, Ginsburg, I hope I don't have you on my jury, if that's uh, (laughs) — but but what the trial court found was that construing the facts in the light most favorable to the the plaintiff as a non-moving party, that uh, reasonable jurors could find that this this was simply a person who was driving fast. This was not a person who was — driving assaultively, he wasn't driving violently, he wasn't a threat to anyone uh, that would authorize the use of deadly force against him. Is that a factual finding of the, of the trial court here? Uh, that is a factual finding, yes. Are we bound by that fact? We're bound by that for purposes of this interlocutory appeal. Uh, this is an interlocutory appeal under Mitchell v. Vorsyth, and the court is bound by its own ruling to accept the facts as found by the court below and decide the narrow issue of law here which is, one, uh, is there a constitutional violation on these facts, and, two, uh, was the law clearly established? Even if, having watched the tape, uh, there, there's no way that that factual finding can be, can be accurate? Um, if, um, if you want to re- repeal um, Johnson v. Jones and um, Mitchell v. Forsyth, uh, yes, so this is the Supreme Court, you can make that determination. But based upon the prior rulings of this court, uh, this court is bound to accept the, fi- the findings of fact of the courts below and then to determine solely the legal issue uh, on an interlocutory basis. The, the, um, the bottom line issue here, uh, Your Honors, is whether the fact that someone is driving in violation of traffic laws um, in and of itself can be justification for the use of deadly force. I don't see how, I mean, you know, given our prior discussion here, I don't see how that's the issue. Well, As you say, we have to assume that the defendant here didn't know that, in fact, all that was at issue was a violation of the traffic law. Well, I'm not talking about the underlying violation here. I'm talking about the conduct observed uh, by the officer who made the decision. That conduct could be a conduct. uh, You could say exactly your same question, just as the chief just said. I mean, I don't know how to get around this. You could say the question was, does a person who reasonably thinks he might be being pursued for a murder? Well, this uh, is the, this is the issue. I mean, this is the issue. If, um, if what this person is doing is driving, say, driving unsafely, but they're not driving violently, they're not driving aggressively, they're not menacing anyone on the road, they're simply driving fast, trying to get away, that in and of itself uh, is that going to be justification for the use of deadly force or something more going to be required? When someone is if fleeing and creating a grave danger, let's just assume that that's the case, creating a very grave danger for other drivers on the road, when, in your, in your view, is it reasonable for the police to use deadly force to stop that as opposed to breaking off the chase? What, what is the test? Well, the, under Garner, the test is they have to be uh, — threatening violence or, or inflicting violence against someone. Uh, there have to be no other alternatives other than deadly force ne- available to affect the apprehension. 
and assuming there is justification to, for deadly force, then there's a duty to give a warning where feasible before using deadly force. And the court below felt that none of those three How factors. How could you possibly met. give a warning in this situation? It's academic in this case because the first two factors are not met. I mean, our, it's our position that you don't worry about giving a warning unless you have the right to use deadly force. And if you don't get to that point, then it's it's a moot question. Why, why wasn't there warning in that there were lights, there were sirens? Surely the, the defendant knew that the police were trying to stop him. There was certainly warning that he needed, that he was that expected to Aaron. pull over. Um, there was no warning of any intent to use deadly force. What, what am I supposed you to assume, right? actually? What am I supposed to assume, you said, in light of this? I mean, I look at the tape, and that tape shows he's weaving on both sides of the lane, swerving around automobiles that are coming in the opposite direction with their lights on, goes through a red light, where there are several cars that are right there, weaves around them, uh, and their cars coming the other way, weaves back, goes down the road. Now, what is it? Am I supposed to pretend I haven't seen that? What am I, what am I supposed to pretend here? Well, I didn't see that. I mean, you didn't see that? Going, you didn't, I thought that you didn't see that? Well, the place where most people use the word weaving to describe the motion of Mr. Harris's car is when they're going through the uh, the shopping center. And no, no, I, what I saw is he's driving down one lane, but I mean by weaving, and this lane goes with me in traffic, and there's some cars in front of him, so he goes in the other lane, where the cars are now coming right directly at him. And then, before they hit him, he goes back to the first lane, and he does this while going through a red light, it seemed to me. Am I, did I miss see that? I'll go look at it again if you. Those are, feel free to look at it again, but no. those are not the facts as it's found by the court below. And it's certainly well, that, that's what I wonder. If the court said that isn't what happened and I see with my eyes what is what happened, what am I supposed to do? Well, I think you, uh, apply the law, Your Honor. Well, under your, your rule, what you're concerned with is the bumping, the use of the force. Um, under your rule, uh, if the police continue the chase, but without using the, without trying to ram it, and then there's an accident um, and innocent people are, are, are killed uh, or, or injured, I assume that under the tort laws of most states, the police could be liable. Well, as a, in theory, perhaps they could be if the officer was a joint proximate cause of the accident, but in well, most aren't, aren't states... Well, aren't they the proximate cause if they continue the chase without trying to terminate it? That's correct. If the officer terminates the chase, then he's never going to be liable because, number one, he's acting prudently. He's going based upon Department of Justice studies showing... No, no, oh, well, I, I meant terminate the chase by, by, by forcing him off the road. Well, if he terminates the chase using deadly force... Um, then that creates a whole host of other problems. But, but, isn't, but, but, but isn't that one way to assure that uh, uh, the police are not uh, liable, uh, both from a moral standpoint and a legal standpoint, for causing the injury of other people? Well, from a constitutional standpoint, the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect other people. It protects those who are being seized. And that's, that's the framework we're dealing well, with. Well, today. you mean it's irrelevant to our analysis to consider that he might injure other people? The potential for danger to others is certainly part of the, the uh, justification for deadly force, uh, just as if deadly force cannot be used without dangering other people, then that certainly goes into the matrix, too. Mr. Jones, uh, what, yes, could I, could I uh, ask whether the portion of the 
opinion that you say uh, uh, establishes that, that he was not endangering anybody is this portion. Uh, the Court is mindful the traffic laws are designed to look safely, but, uh, and uh, Harris acted in an unsafe manner. However, the record reflects, is this the portion, that yes. he maintained control over his vehicle. Well, that doesn't prove he's not endangering anybody. Used his turn signals. Wonderful. And, and did not endanger any particular motorist on the road. I think that's true. In that scary chase, uh, he, he didn't come close to hitting any particular car. But I don't think that's, that's a finding that he was, he was not endangering anybody. Any well, particular motorist. But uh, uh, he was endangering the public at large. Well, this is my point, is that if, if, the dry, if the hazard caused by driving in and itself is the only threat here, does that rise to a level of imminency and immediacy that justifies the use of deadly force? If it does, then any officer who perceives that someone is driving unsafely and that they may cause an accident to someone who may or may not be down the road, uh, if not stopped, would be justified in using deadly force so to, to literally take out anyone it depends, on how it depends on how fast the car is going, whether it's a two-lane road or a four-lane uh, uh, divided highway, uh, all those factors come into, into account. And it doesn't seem to me that we have to adopt a rule that, that, that will discourage uh, police officers. Uh, there, there's, there, there's enough disincentive to engage in this kind of activity uh, in the fact that the police officer may hurt himself. It's pretty risky to, uh, to conduct this kind of a maneuver, don't you think? I wouldn't have done it if I was Scott. Well, not that he's ran Now, what he, if he drives 90 miles an hour and, and comes up, approaches that car, if that car swerved, Scott could have been killed, couldn't he? Absolutely. Or because he all So I don't think we need a whole lot of disincentive to stop uh, police officers from engaging in this kind of frolicsome conduct. Well, not only that, Justice Scalia, the officer had no control over what was going to happen once he used deadly force. Uh, like the officer who fired into the cab of a fleeing vehicle in Vaughn v. Cox. Once you disable the driver, the car keeps going. And in, in this case, when you, when you hit the vehicle and knock a vehicle that has been in control and make it out of control, then it's now an unguided missile that could just as easily cross the center line and hit an innocent Let me just person. ask this question. And you, in trying to assess the likelihood of harm to innocent people who will be hurt by this guy driving so fast, is that do we measure it by assuming that the state chase will continue, or do we measure it by assuming that the chase would be discontinued? The officer Just as we did in Garner. The officer has both options. I mean, Garner simply commands that he not use deadly force if there's a choice between letting him go and using deadly force. Now, in the Sacramento v. Lewis case, it does say uh, that involves a different, a different type of claim and a different standard. But in the Sacramento case, it does say that an officer in a pursuit has a duty to always be weighing the risk of the continued pursuit against the risk to the public. So there's an independent duty there to but act if it, reasonably. But if it were with regard perfectly to clear that a jury could find that there would be no unreasonable risk to innocent motorists if they discontinued the chase, assume that's a possible finding. If that were true, would there be a duty to discontinue the chase? Not under the Fourth Amendment. Now, the, um, 
the only expert testimony in this record on that subject says that you say there just be a duty not to use uh, not to use deadly force. That's what Garner says. You don't use deadly force, and that's what our claim is. And, now, and aren't you concerned that that creates an incentive in every case for anyone who sees the blue lights behind them to know that all they have to do is keep fleeing? and the police are going to have to give up eventually. Well, let me respond by reading just a short portion from Garner that deals with that point, Mr. Chief Justice. These these same important policy reasons were raised in Garner that we don't want to encourage disobedience of officers. We want to discourage people from fleeing. And this is what the Garner court said. Garner Garner was the case involving shooting the guy in the back, right? Yes. He might easily break into someone else's house and perhaps end up killing them. Uh, There there was a vigorous dissent in Garner. But this is what the majority said. Without in any way disparaging the importance of these goals, we are not convinced that the use of deadly force is a sufficiently productive means of accomplishing them to justify the killing of nonviolent suspects. And if unsafe your, your, your answer to Justice Stevens, uh, as I understand, was the police do not have the duty to discontinue the chase. Uh, the, 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 the obverse of that is that the police may prolong the chase, i.e. prolong the injury to the public. I'm surprised at your answer. Well, I think there's an independent duty that it doesn't arise under the Fourth Amendment, but there is an independent duty to, uh, to do that. But my concern is that under Garner, given a choice between there's going to be a, a, a risk of deadly harm to innocent third parties, there'd be a duty to discontinue the chase rather than kill them. But you don't seem to, to buy that. Well, the experience shows that most of the time when you discontinue a chase, the, the person who's running discontinues driving unsafely. That, that, is the, the, that is experience. This officer's own policy says that um, — did, did this study show what future fleeing speeders would do? I mean, I, I'm, I, I will accept that for, uh, uh, for the sake of argument that uh, — in fact, it's probably true. I would have guessed that if the police stopped chasing you, you, you don't go 90 miles an hour anymore. But did this study show what the effect of a rule that says stop chasing when he hits 85, what the effect of that rule would be on, on fleeing speeders or fleeing felons or fleeing anybody? Well, the rule simply says you don't kill him just because he's driving unsafely. And if it simply says that if the choice is between killing him and letting him go, you have to let him go if the Garner factors aren't present. And we find nothing in the law and no reason to create a new exception in the law that says that Garner doesn't apply if you're fleeing by vehicle. Thank you. We ask that the Court of Appeals be affirmed. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Uh, Mr. Saverin, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, Let me uh, refocus for a moment that in order for the officer to be denied qualified immunity in this context, a jury would have to be able to find two things. One, that that there was no probable cause, and second, that that was clearly established. And I think that the discussion this morning, if nothing else, shows that it's not clearly established. As far as the Fourth Amendment is concerned, I think the measure needs to be exactly as this Court stated in Graham versus Connor, which is looking at the facts from the standpoint of the officer on the scene. Because after all, he has to make split-second decisions. He does not have the benefit 
of taking depositions of Mr. Harris. What am I supposed to do? I mean, I'll look again at the tape. I certainly will do that. But suppose I look at the tape and I end up with Chico Marx's old question in respect to the Court of Appeals. Who do you believe, me or your own eyes? Your Honor, I think the answer to that question was provided in this uh, decision in Ornelas versus United States, a decision by this Court in 1996 that came up in the context of a criminal, direct criminal appeal uh, involving the question of probable cause. And this Court set forth very clearly that the historical facts are given deference. The question of the legal question about whether or not those facts reasonably give rise to probable cause is an independent de novo review. Well, whether he's endangering anybody is a historical fact, no? So what do you do about that finding? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't believe that is a historical fact. I think really? the historical facts here are whether uh, Mr. Harris was driving excessively, whether he was driving across the line, whether he was driving at high rates of speed, whether there was anybody in his path, whether he had uh, collided with anyone. I think the question about whether or not those facts give rise to probable cause to believe that Harris was a threat of serious physical harm is a legal issue. And I think the Court of Appeals recognized that in this case when they applied a different analysis and came out with a different result to those same undisputed facts. What, what are the, the Court saying, and this is on page 39A of the petition appendix, when Harris was driving away from officers and when there, when there, were, there were no other motorists or pedestrians nearby, thus casting doubt on defendant's assertion that at the time of the ramming, Harris posed an immediate threat of harm to others, this is a finding that there were no other motorists or pedestrians nearby when the ramming occurred. And that is a fact that we accept as true in the immediate vicinity. The tape shows that there was a vehicle just 12 seconds before, and I think that a reasonable officer at the time would believe that that wasn't going to be the last vehicle on that road. I would hope he would wait until there were no pedestrians or vehicles uh, coming before he, before he did the ramming. Yes, Your Honor. I assume he waited precisely for that kind of a gap in the traffic. Yes, Your Honor, exactly. He had limited options, and I believe it was a no-win scenario, and he took the best course that he reasonably believed he could at the time. And do, you, do you agree with Mr. Jones's statement that none of Mr. Harris's conduct rose to the level of a felony? I would not, Your Honor. Uh, in our brief, we did list a number of uh, felonies that uh, Mr. Harris, that we believe he committed, but, but I would go back to Garner and say that Garner says that an armed suspect would have been a different case. And Garner also says that some misdemeanors, such as drunk driving, are more dangerous than some felonies, such as white-collar crimes. So I think the question should not be whether it's a technical issue of crossing the line from misdemeanor to felony, but the harm that is being caused by the continued driving. That's exactly what occurred in this case. And if I could respond to uh, Justice Breyer's question about what to do in terms of responding to Mr. Marx's question, uh, I think the Ornelas case says that you would review it for clear error. And in that case, you would not owe deference to a uh, finding of fact by the uh, lower court. Thank you, Mr. Saverin. The case is submitted.